Hey now, we are getting over, and I am the Silver King, Adam Silver Team, here to lead you through these hard times, that it, with the Wednesday Night Wars edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. Unfortunately, today's show is not all fun and games, breaking down everything that has gone on in the worlds of WWE's NXT and AEW. Unfortunately, today's show is not all fun and games, breaking down everything that went on Wednesday night in NXT and AEW. We need to start this show on a little bit of a somber tone. We are going to get to all of that in a moment. Before we do, you know the drill. Head on over to Twitter. Follow us at Getting Overcast. You can follow the Silver King at Silverstein Adam. And I will remind you again at the end of the episode, but you can also check out Apple Podcasts where you can subscribe. You can listen to every single episode of Getting Over. Also available, by the way, Spotify, Overcast, anywhere you listen to podcasts, you can get Getting Over. But I do want you to head on over to Apple Podcasts specifically. Drop that five-star rating and review every single time you guys do it it means a lot to us not just because we love to hear kind words about the show it helps people see that getting over exists hopefully they give it a listen and end up subscribing it's the least you can do in these trying times you know finn balor told you stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me yeah go back to being a mark for me the silver king and the getting over wrestling podcast but there is a lot to get to today and i am running solo. So I think for the first time in Wednesday Night Wars edition history, let's enter the main event. And unfortunately, the main event this week uh, has to do with coronavirus, COVID-19, as it was reported late Wednesday, just before the Wednesday night shows were about to begin, that anywhere from two handfuls to two dozen people in WWE have tested positive for COVID-19. The first we know for sure that is a positive is Renee Young, who announced it near midnight on Wednesday from her home in Nevada. Uh, Early Thursday morning, just before I taped the show, Adam Pierce, the WWE producer who you've seen on screen as a figurehead here and there when they need it, he announced that he has also tested positive for the coronavirus. And before the shows began on Wednesday night, we heard that John Moxley and QT Marshall Both pulled out of AEW Dynamite out of an abundance of caution, basically due to contract uh, tracing and them being in the proximity of people that may have had coronavirus. And I don't know about all of you, but as soon as I heard that about John Moxley, the first thought in my head, and my dogs as well, you just heard moose in the background. The first thought in my head was, I really hope that's not Renee Young. Now, AEW actually had to replace three segments on its show. Uh, And lucky for them, it was a live taping, so they were able to take some precautions against future bookings. Uh, But not only did they have a John Moxley in-ring match, presumably, that they had to replace, uh, QT Marshall was going to be in a tag team match, they substituted SCU, and they also had Sammy Guevara, who originally had a match scheduled with Matt Hardy, but after his Sasha Banks comments, despite his apology, he's currently suspended, so AEW made a change there as well. So none none of them majorly uh, substantial. And luckily so far, we do not know of anyone specifically in AEW who has coronavirus. Uh, Dave Meltzer reported early Thursday that John Moxley has tested negative for coronavirus, um, but, you know, symptoms and even the virus itself can take a few days to show up in a system. With Moxley in particular, we do know that in two weeks time, 
And really the taping, I believe, is less than that. I think it's eight days or nine days time. Uh, he is going to face Brian Cage for the AEW world title in the second night of Fighter Fest. The second night is being taped, I think, on July 2nd, July 3rd, something like that. So, you know, that is very much up in the air. We are going to find out what AEW decides to do. Hopefully Moxley stays home, stays separate from Renee Young, as, as difficult as that might be. And, um, you know, ultimately test negative a couple times and is able to fly, is able to go to that taping and do his job. I'm sure, quite sure, that he is not happy about this. And nor is Renee, nor is anyone in WWE. And, and that is really what we're going to talk about. Before we do, um, you know, I don't think my words particularly mean any more than anyone else's. But I will say that I've been covering wrestling in a number of ways for the better part of 20 years. Um, I had a newsletter when I was a teenager uh, out of high school, top rope newsletter, and it was pretty popular. I would probably say it was the number one or number two professional wrestling newsletter at the time, not counting the Wrestling Observer. I'm not talking about dirt sheet. I'm talking about online email newsletter. It was big. I think I had 60,000 subscribers or so. But the reason I bring this up is because I have interviewed dozens of wrestlers over the years, and I've covered dozens of wrestling stories, even though I took a very large break in terms of covering wrestling uh, by the time I went to college, all the way through basically my time at CBS Sports when I kind of just picked it up again. But Renee Young is probably the number one nicest, sweetest, most accommodating person I've met in all of those years. Gives you as much time as you want, is completely honest, um, and just seems to be a super sweet person deep down inside. We even have a little Twitter banter back and forth. We're, we don't really know each other. We're not friends or anything. Um, but, you know, we'll talk about food or I'll, I'll tweet her something she tweets and she always gets back, replies back. And you can just tell that deep down she has a really good heart as if that didn't come across on TV, which of course it does as well. So I hate this for her. Uh, according to Dave Meltzer, she did have symptoms. She's not asymptomatic and it was rough for a couple of days. Uh, the belief is that she's getting better. And I'm just very happy to hear that. So it's just a really tough situation for her. Um, and it's a tough situation for WWE, but it is not one that is not self-imposed. Folks, I live in the Sunshine State. I live in Florida. And maybe as I do this diatribe here, I will end up talking about that and what is going on nationally, even though that is not my goal here. But to start with, we all know, and we've said it on this podcast from the very beginning, if a company like WWE or AEW, and to AEW's credit, they are doing this, but if a company like WWE that is sport-based, athletic, includes people touching, breathing, sweating on each other, occasionally bleeding on each other, if they are not able to test for coronavirus, they should not be running. It, that has been the case since the very beginning. Now, look, what happened this week was inevitable in WWE, even more inevitable because WWE is currently operating out of Orange County, Florida, which is one of the top hotspots for coronavirus nationwide right now due to governor, due to his um, decision to basically open this economy as quick as possible. I don't even like the term open the economy. It was never closed. Uh, but due to Ron DeSantis's decisions, due to um, the way that the coronavirus has been handled nationwide, lack of testing, lack of mandated mask use, etc. And 
Orlando being a huge traveling area, there's a lot of flights that come in and out. There's a lot of entertainment that happens in Orlando and it being in Florida with all the lacking protections that I just mentioned, um, there was bound to be a spike in this area. There was also bound to be a spike in WWE at some point when you are running this many shows consistently without testing for coronavirus. And I know a lot of people are going to say, well, wait, Adam, I heard previous episodes of the show where you talked about them doing temperature checks and questionnaires. So they were at least taking a modicum of precaution. Yeah, they were. They were taking a modicum of precaution. They were doing literally the bare minimum that they could do legally to get by. Um, You know, my mom currently has to go into the office and she does not work an important job. So it's annoying to me that she is considered an essential business and has to go in. They're not doing, they're not doing anything for her job. But my barber, who I have not seen in three months, but I know, you know, somewhat personally, um, he has to go in. They're doing temperature checks. They're, they're not necessarily doing the medical questionnaires, but they're wearing masks and they're mandating that everyone in the office wear masks. They are doing the minimum. The difference is that WWE is not a barber shop. It is an athletic, physical competition where you have to touch and sweat and breathe on people in extremely close proximity. No, the wrestlers cannot wear masks. Of course not. The crowd can, the producers can, the bookers can, the crew can. And the fact that they don't, especially without coronavirus tests before they get into the facility, made this inevitable. I I criticized AEW numerous times on this show for, yeah, they were doing testing, but they'd have some people wear masks in the crowd, others wouldn't. Some that did pulled them down. It looked stupid. It was sending the wrong message. Now AEW is not having anyone wear masks. But despite me being critical about that, at least they were testing. So the risk level was so much lower that it was just like wear masks or don't, but make a decision one way. In WWE, the fact that people aren't wearing masks and they weren't testing from the beginning was absolutely absurd. So now we're into the situation where... Anywhere from two handfuls to two dozen employees, that's talent, crew, setup, staffing, whoever, have now tested positive for coronavirus. And I reached out to WWE multiple times for confirmation on the positive tests. Not names, they're not going to release the names, but confirmation that there were positives and what steps WWE is going to now take to make this right and ensure that other people are protected going forward. And The response that I got back was WWE will continue to test for coronavirus ahead of all TV programming and production. Well, that's bullshit. I mean, let's just call it what it is. Did they test last week before TV and production? Yes, they did that after a developmental talent tested positive, and they basically had no choice. They had to cancel a day of shooting, delay it 24 hours, test everyone. Now, again, according to Dave Meltzer, who does have good sources, and I'm going to trust him on this. Those tests seemingly either all came back negative or mostly came back negative. And anyone who worked WWE's tapings last week did so with a negative test. Okay, fine. But now clearly there is some positive contact and, and, some, and some positive coronavirus going around. How did it happen? Where did it come from? How many people were affected and why? And that is what I think uh, we need to figure out. Look, it's not lost on me that WWE randomly uh, before those tapings said, hey, you know what? We're going to let friends and family join the tapings. Bad idea from the start. Very bad idea to have them there without masks. It was unnecessary. There weren't enough to add to the sound. 
It was just ridiculous. Um, maybe WWE just is a microcosm of the state of Florida and maybe the nation as a whole. They got too confident. They said, you know what? This seems to be under control. We haven't been hit yet. Let's start taking steps to quote unquote reopen. Well, guess what? It bit them in the ass, just like it's biting this country in the ass, unfortunately. Um, so it's despicable. I I've said it from the beginning that they should not be running um, or they should not have been running in March and April until they were able to get tests and able, able to test everyone. And I even didn't give them a lot of grief when AEW was testing, but WWE wasn't, despite knowing that WWE needed to test because tests were far more readily available in Jacksonville than they were in Orlando. But it's late June at this point. The, from the beginning of this month, at a very minimum, tests have been widely available in Orlando. And for WWE to not come out and ensure that all of their talent and all of their employees were tested before every single taping, when they had the ability to do so, is just negligent. Not legally negligent. They're not liable. They're not going to get sued. At least, I mean, they could get sued, but I don't think that it would hold up in court. Um, but it's just negligent and it's not good. And it's just another example of WWE being in many ways a crappy company. I think there are things that you can defend WWE about. Um, there are things that you can't. The Saudi Arabia relationship being one, this being another. It's despicable. They should be ashamed of themselves. I hope every single person who does have a positive coronavirus test uh, with WWE, I hope as many of them as possible are asymptomatic. I hope they are able to come back and, and work and be healthy and safe. Um, and for those that do have it, I, I hope for speedy recoveries because they don't deserve it. Um, there are inherent risks with traveling for work. These people have to fly in. Um, they have to stay at hotels or stay in certain areas that are not their home. So there's risk. People were going to catch coronavirus. Uh, people in AEW will catch coronavirus, even if it has nothing to do with being at AEW. But the workplace and home are two places that should be completely safe. And WWE did not allow their workplace environment to be as safe as it possibly could be. It is biting them in the ass. And the ones who are really dealing with it are the performers. On top of this, we now have New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut who have basically, basically come out and said, anyone traveling to our states from, let's say, a handful of states, I think it's like Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, Arizona, California, there may be a couple I'm missing, but anyone traveling to our states from there have a mandatory 14-day quarantine. And that makes things very interesting for AEW, which has a number of talents that live in the Northeast, and for WWE, which has a ton of executives and staffs, staff, obviously, that live and work in and around Stamford, Connecticut, and the New York area. So what does that mean? Well, WWE is taping multiple shows in advance. That has been what they've done from, I guess, mid-May onward, maybe even the beginning of May. So I don't exactly know how that's going to work. Could WWE get around it with private planes as opposed to using commercial? Potentially. Um, but both companies are really going to have to consider what this travel restriction means because how do you tape something with, I can't even, well, let's just make believe Kevin Owens lives in uh, Connecticut. He doesn't. He lives in Florida, but let's just make believe he does. How do you tape something with Kevin Owens, tape two shows, have him be ready for the pay-per-view, but unable to travel back to Orlando for the pay-per-view? How do you ensure that all these people traveling to and from Orange County, 
which is where Orlando is located, are as safe as possible coming through the airport and don't pick it up in the airport, test negative when they get to the facility, and then a couple of days later start showing symptoms not knowing they've already transmitted it to people inside WWE. This is a very, very difficult thing that WWE is dealing with. I do not wish this upon any company. Um, but again, because of their lacking testing procedures and what has been seemingly a insufficient response or respect even for the potential impact and spread of the coronavirus, this was inevitable. And they put themselves in this position as unfortunate as it is. That said, my lone remaining message about all of this, folks, wearing a mask is not political. It's just not. People can try to make it political, but it isn't. It's not restricting your rights or your freedoms. If, you're, if your city state allows you to go out and shop and do the things that you need to do, but the only thing they're asking for you to do is to put a cloth covering on your face to help save other people, ensure other people don't get sick, it's the absolute minimum that you can do. I like wearing a mask. I got to be honest. My nose gets red sometimes. I get dry skin a little bit on my face. I usually have to moisturize. Guess what I do now? I put a mask on. I go out. I don't have to do any of that shit. Women, some women feel like, hey, I have to put makeup on to go out. I have to be presentable. You know, that's individually. Um, now you don't have to. Put a mask on. No one's going to see the makeup. Maybe just do your eyes if you feel like you have to do that. Boom. You just saved yourself 30 minutes. So just wear a freaking mask if you're going to go out in public with other people. Try to socially distance best you possibly can. Stay home as much as you possibly can. I have been home since early March. I have made so many life and work sacrifices to keep myself safe and to keep my family safe. And it angers me to the core that I have spent all this time here doing everything that has been asked of me. And it's worked for me personally. Knock on wood, I don't have anything or I didn't you know, pick up anything. It's great. But every single thing I'm doing can be completely undone by me not wearing a mask one time when I go out or by you not wearing a mask and breathing on me when I go out. And that's not fair to me. It's not fair to you. It's not fair to my family, your family, or anyone you come in contact with. So wear a damn mask, socially distance, stay home as much as you possibly can, stay safe, sit, stay healthy, and send this message to everyone you know who is not abiding by it. Okay, we are about 20 minutes into the show. I'm sorry, it needed to be said, but we are here to talk professional wrestling. And we're going to get to that. I'm going to start with NXT, folks, because when you look at AEW and NXT head-to-head -head again this week, it was a very similar takeaway that I had from last week. NXT had that one segment and one moment that separated it in terms of the two shows. I did not think NXT top to bottom was very good. I did not think AEW top to bottom was very good. In fact, AEW, there were many parts of it I did not like. Um, and I will get to those and I will explain why. But what NXT did have and that AEW did not, NXT had a main event. It had a 25-minute barn burner between Keith Lee, Johnny Gargano, and Finn Balor. Yeah, it was freaking awesome. So they had a promo package earlier in the show that set up the match and the whole basically Gold Rush storyline. That was an A-plus package. It's exactly what WWE does 
from a production standpoint that separates them from everyone else. Absolutely tremendous. As I said, the match was booked for over 25 minutes, which as all of you know, is exactly what I want to see from Wednesday night main events. It was very much a handicap match on times, honestly, which only worked to Keith Lee's benefit in the end, considering the long-term booking of him now getting an NXT world title shot. I love the Keith Lee callback with him, you know, rising on the apron behind Finn Balor, like the Incredible Hulk or something like that. It was an awesome spot. And the springboard wipeout that he did immediately after was impressive. Obviously, the rising was a throwback to that other triple threat match he was in. I believe it was with Tommaso Ciampa and Finn Balor on NXT. It was the opposite corner of the ring. Uh, But that Keith Lee spot's awesome. It's kind of like when The Undertaker sits up. You're going to see that for the rest of his career in WWE. Very, very cool. Um, You also saw Finn Balor reverse the last ride type powerbomb that Lee was about to do into the double foot stomp. That was incredible. Truly shows his talent and how smart and inventive Balor is and how athletic he is as well. And then you got the win, of course, from Keith Lee with the double Big big Bang catastrophe, which I do think is a hysterical, hysterical name for his finisher. Um, First to Gargano, then to Finn Balor. It It allowed Lee not only to retain the title, but look dominant in the match. Balor and Gargano did everything they could and they were unable to beat this behemoth of a man. Uh, Three finishers in 30 seconds to end the match. Zero kickouts. That was another positive for me. And I absolutely loved the stare down at the finish and the call out by Mauro Ranallo to end the show, basically saying, look at this major duel we have going on in a couple weeks. Now, we will talk on next week's show what we expect to happen in this title versus title match between Adam Cole and Keith Lee. I do have an idea, but I am going to save it. Let's break down the rest of NXT. Uh, After a very strongly booked show last week in terms of how the episode was built, uh, there was no question that this week's was going to leave a lot to be desired. As I mentioned earlier, it absolutely did. You had Cameron Grimes defeat Damian Priest. It was a C-level match, and they used that to open the show with Priest nursing an injury uh, and a pre-match attack from Grimes in the parking lot. Grimes needs wins, and he's clearly going to be a bastard type of heel. So the booking was fine, but this is not something I would have opened the show with. Neither of them is a big enough name to keep viewers. The angle isn't hot enough to keep viewers. They could have found something else to use in the opening segment of the show. Honestly, maybe even the Roderick Strong, Dexter Loomis thing. I mean, at least those are people that fans want to see what is about to happen in that feud, in that storyline. But I will give Priest a lot of credit. He is an incredible seller. We saw it in the Finn Balor match. Uh, and you saw it again against Grimes. He sold every single thing that happened to him in his ribs. Uh, he is great. And man, like I, I've said this many times, when he joined as Punishment Martinez, I was like, why the hell did WWE sign Punishment Martinez? And when he first debuted with the Archer of Infamy gimmick, I'm like, oh my God, this guy's not going to be good. But every single thing he has done since his debut continues to impress me. It is not often that WWE can take someone that was severely underutilized somehow, even though though as Punishment Martinez, he was a big focal point of Ring of Honor, but they can take someone who did not reach his full potential in another organization and take him up this many steps. I mean, Samoa Joe has been great in WWE, but he's not necessarily any greater than he was previously. Damian Priest is legitimately greater and better than Punishment Martinez ever was. So I love that. Santos Escobar defeated Jake Atlas in a non-title match, but it was a strong match for both men. Escobar looking strong 
himself without hurting Atlas too much. The Phantom Driver is a great finisher for Escobar. He was able to win clean, which is always key, as a heel shouldn't really need interference from his group or faction, except for in major situations, title defenses, major rivalry matches, etc. I also thought the entrance music was sick, really solid, and Legado de Fantasma is already a winner for me. They are building this very well, but again, three people is a group. We need an additional person to make this a legitimate faction. I also want to make sure that Santos Escobar speaks as much as he possibly can. I was incredibly impressed with that last week. This week, he had a great match. He dispatched of Jake Atlas, and he kind of just stood there. Yeah, he still looked menacing, still looked strong, but I want to hear him talk. Uh, Malcolm Bivens finally got the chance to really cut a promo, and we finally got our first Stokely audio drop. I am pissed off. I'm pissed to the highest level of pissivity. I honestly probably should have used that in the main event segment of the show to talk about WWE's handling of the coronavirus. Nevertheless, great audio drop. Great to see Malcolm Bivens on the screen. It was a decent segment, but we still need to learn about Indushare. Who are they? What are their motivations? And why should we care? They have to give us more. It's been too many weeks that we've seen them on TV to just kind of say, these are a couple big Indian dudes who can kick some ass. They're green. They have to give us some reason to believe in them, just like they did with the Authors of Pain. Very similar situation where those guys were green, they eventually became very good and were able to move on to WWE main roster. But right now, Indu Share, they just exist. I like that they're with Bivens. I know that was kind of thrown together last minute. It wasn't necessarily planned because they needed tag teams and they knew those guys couldn't get over on their own. That's all well and good. But now you've had a few weeks. Let's, let's do a vignette. Let's do some backstory. Let's figure out who these guys are and why we care about them. Uh, we saw Dakota Kai and Raquel Gonzalez defeat Kansi Cantanazaro and Caden Carter. Of course, this was the expected result in this match. As I said last week, I do wish that the KCs would have gotten a win at some point in this short rivalry, a singles roll-up, just something to kind of say, hey, they're a legitimate team that you need to watch out for. But I do love the idea of them working together, and they worked really well together. Big Mommy Cool, sick nickname, by the way, for Raquel Gonzalez, was the most impressive she's been to date in NXT, and that awesome extended one-arm powerbomb of Casey. I tweeted it out, a video of it on the at Getting Overcast account. What a sick finish to that match. There's a DM later, I think, about Raquel Gonzalez, so I'm going to save my thoughts on her. But when I was watching that match, the way she was dressed, the way she looked, the way she acted, I could not get it out of my head that Raquel Gonzalez and Sonia Deville could 100% be kayfabe sisters and an absolute dominant tag team in WWE. The relationship with Dakota Kai is fine. It's very much a Shawn Michaels Diesel situation. But man, I think her and Sonya Deville could be absolutely ridiculous together. And I hope that WWE sees that one day. I mean, it could be years down the line, but I hope they see it. Uh, Karrion Cross defeated Bronson Reed. We all knew Cross would win here. Reed, though, got in some significant offense. And I like what that means for him in the short term with maybe a potential push or at least a little bit more TV time coming for the former Jonah Rock. Cross looked impressive, uh, was still able to put his power moves on Reed, who's obviously much larger from a weight standpoint. Uh, it was also a nice in-between feud for Cross as we wait for him to either interfere in this title match in two weeks or claim that he's the number one contender against whoever the winner of that match ultimately is. 
Rhea Ripley defeated Aaliyah. The match went exactly as expected with Ripley being dominant and even fending off a Robert Stone interference. The note that I wrote down after the match was that it's time for Ripley to get serious again. This was fine for a couple of weeks, but she needs to move forward. And then right, as, right after I wrote that note, uh, it now seems like they did a segment backstage and we have a two-on-one handicap match for next week with Ripley joining the Robert Stone brand as a stipulation if she loses. It's an interesting stipulation and I'm actually curious to see what they do from a booking standpoint. Ripley can either look dominant, beating both Aaliyah and a man in Robert Stone, um, or they can go in the direction of Ripley somehow fluke losing, having to join the Robert Stone brand, kind of like John Cena did when he lost to Wade Barrett and then had to join Nexus. And maybe Robert Stone actually helps her rekindle her dominance and it works and they stay together. It doesn't seem like the booking I would ever do or that most of you would ever do, but it is something I'm at least curious to see. And I'm I'm wondering what is actually going to happen next week. And anytime you have something a little bit unpredictable like that, it's just as good as when you have something that is predictable. Sometimes predictable things are good. The redemption arc does seem to be working, though, for Rhea Ripley, at least for now. We will see how long that lasts. I mentioned earlier Dexter Loomis and Roderick Strong. Uh, people didn't like the therapy stuff last week. I heard a lot of people disagree with me. I thought it was entertaining, both last week and this week, leading to... Roderick Strong's basically mental breakdown, and it gave us a reason for him to basically lose this match by countout. Uh, it's a unique booking, but Dexter Loomis is a unique character. So while normally I would hate a chicken shit heel running away from a match, like if The Miz did it or something like that, Dexter Loomis is supposed to be like off-putting, and he's supposed to kind of put you on edge, and he did kidnap him in a trunk. So if that's your storyline, Roderick Strong being scared of him is pretty solid. And I was also kind of pleased that they are paying it off next week with a strap match, where therefore Roderick Strong won't be able to go anywhere. The last strap match we got, The Fiend versus Daniel Bryan on SmackDown, it's a damn good match. Uh, so I'm happy to see Roderick Strong and Dexter Loomis in that type of match. And I'm very curious to see what they end up doing with Loomis in that scenario. So randomly during the main event, of the show on Wednesday night. NXT announced the Great American Bash was coming up next week. And they then sent a story, a WWE sent a story um, via its Twitter account and posted on its website that said Great American Bash will actually be a two-week event. Clearly, WWE's effort to go head-to-head -head and counter-program Fest. The problem that I have with it is there's basically no card. They, yes, they have built up a ridiculous Adam Cole versus Keith Lee main event uh, for the second week, I guess. And yeah, head-to-head -head with Jon Moxley, Brian Cage, I'm going to watch Adam Cole, Keith Lee, even if I'm an AEW fan. That is the singular match that I think, you know, makes sense to go head-to-head. -head. But what else is there? We have the strap match that I mentioned. There's a women's number one contendership with Mia Yim, Tegan Knox, Dakota Kai, and Candice LeRae. And I think that's a legitimate match to be on a two-night, two-week card. But it's a B-level match. Uh, either, I assume, Dakota Kai or Tegan Knox will win. I'm not sure whether Io Shirai is a face or a heel. So if I don't know what she is, I don't know who's going to win the match. But it's going to be one of them. And then you have the title match. And then you have the strap match. So, oh, and I guess you have the Rhea Ripley two-on-one handicap match as well. So you have four matches total announced for two weeks of card. 
And it's ridiculous. You have one match for two weeks from now and three matches uh, for next week. So it's clearly a reactionary move, and it's clear that WWE rushed it. The only thing that makes me slightly okay with it, if it was a one-week show, is Great American Bash, July 4th week. Thematically, it makes sense. If you want to do a special-themed episode for July 4th week, of course it's still reactionary, but at least thematically it makes sense. But to do the Great American Bash for two weeks, it is so obvious that it is clear counter-programming, and for Triple H to previously say that NXT does not counter-program AEW, we know it wasn't totally true. I do believe that that UK TakeOver event was not counter-programming. I actually do believe it. Um, I do believe that WWE had that scheduled long enough in advance that that wasn't the case. But some of the other matches and some of the other bookings that NXT has done recently, it is clearly directly to counter AEW. That does not make it bad. It doesn't mean you shouldn't watch it. But I just don't want anyone saying otherwise because it's just what it is. The only thing I think that now that I see this is the North American Championship match. I know they wanted a big match on this week's show. Maybe to steal some ratings knowing that AEW was almost doing the go-home type of dynamite. But it really feels like that probably should have been the main event for next week's show. Uh, Basically night one of the Great American Bash with then the winner facing Adam Cole in night two the following week. That decision, not a great one in in hindsight, but I am not really sure what NXT is going to do to fill out these two shows to make them anywhere near the caliber that Fighter Fest is. I don't think Fighter Fest necessarily has a great card. Most of the best wrestlers in AEW, not most, many of them, are still not on it. Um, and for various reasons, either they haven't been booked, they've already had opportunities, they're stuck in England or previously stuck in Mexico. It was good to see Pentagon back this week, uh, but obviously there's only a week away from Fighter Fest at this point. So AEW, though, has still built every single title getting defended, a very strong card, and multiple storylines that are leading to blow-off matches on this two-week show. You cannot say the same about NXT in this scenario, And it really leaves me to wonder what this Great American Bash is going to look like by the time we get to it, not just this Wednesday, but the following Wednesday, and if it's even going to hold a candle to Fighter Fest. I do think that they have the opportunity to win the head-to-head with Cole and Keith Lee, but that's like two quarter hours out of, I guess, what would it be, 16 over two weeks? And, And that's not what they're trying to do. So I guess you can maybe do an NXT tag team match, maybe a triple threat or a fatal four way. But you're not going to get a North American title match. You're not going to get another NXT title match. Io Shirai doesn't have a number one contender. Maybe the winner of the number one contenders match can fight Shirai the following week. And I guess you could come up with a cruiserweight title storyline. But there is a lot to be desired from this being a quote-unquote great American bash. In Your House was very smart. This, thematically it works, as I said. The booking being so blatant about the counter-programming, I don't think it works as well. Let's move into AEW. Uh, As I said, there was not a major moment from the show that I kind of want to use as a main topic to get into it. So I'm just going to run through the show. Again, I did think it was a good show, but it just, there were many things that didn't hit home for me. And I'm going to kind of break those down for you as we go. Now we opened hot. Wardlow versus Luchasaurus in a Lumberjack match. I absolutely loved it. I like that they didn't rely too much on the Lumberjacks in the early going. Of course, you always factor them in eventually, but they saved that for nearly the end of the match. 
outside of the badly botched Spanish fly, which was just not a good look. It was entertaining. Everyone got over. The two big guys looked unstoppable. Wardlow came out on top, which he needed. And I think probably his first big featured match since losing to Cody in a cage for his in-ring debut in AEW. And now they've set up MJF and Wardlow against Jurassic Express in what should be a good fighter fest match, a low card match, but nevertheless, one that should be exciting and should ultimately get MJF and Wardlow over even more. I did laugh at Hikaru Shida just basically squashing a jobber in 30 seconds and then running back outside and attacking uh, Penelope Ford and Kip Sabian in the crowd. Sabian sold that really well with his glasses getting popped out. Fun, very quick segment. And I don't know if some of you noticed it, but former NXT wrestler Cesar Bononi was in the crowd alongside Ricky Starks there. So I don't think that means he was signed by AEW or anything, but he got an opportunity to be there. So it was fun to see him on TV. By the way, I think he won like the 2017 NXT breakout star or future star, and then nothing ever came of him. So interesting tidbit there on, on Cesar Bononi. Bononi. Uh, people will tell you that they liked the Jake Hager, Cody press conference. I am not one of those people. It felt completely fake. It was poorly acted. There was only one highlight to the entire thing. That's the most action I've had all year. I think you guys know what that's referring to. And by the way, um, an old sound effect that used to be used on Getting Over has been retired. So you're going to hear a lot more. That's the most action I've had all year. Than the old sound we used to use for things like this. Uh, but as I said, it just felt fake from top to bottom. Um, it, it wasn't very good. And the only takeaway I really have from it is I am now more convinced of a Cody heel turn than I was before. Brody Lee and Colt Cabana beat Joey Janela and Sony Kiss in a tag team match. I enjoyed seeing Janela and Kiss working together, but you cannot really get me to care about Colt Cabana. And full stop right there. And you definitely can't get me to care about Colt Cabana and the Dark Order. The Lance Archer attack after the match felt a bit random, but it was a good way for him to get over by attacking two faces, I guess, in Janela and Kiss. And I am a little curious to see what they end up doing with Lance Archer in the longer term, because it's pretty clear they don't have a direction for him right now. They did when they brought him in, but right now everything is just kind of up in the air. I did love everything about the Britt Baker segments on Dynamite, and I continue to. Turning the golf cart into a mobile. I mean, that's just really smart. Um, and the BB Rolls Royce shirt where she had BB instead of the RR on her chest. Again, just a very smart little character thing. Reba using the leaf blower to try to keep Big Swole away. Again, just very funny. And Swole staying aggressive, dumping the trash into the mobile. Just really enjoyable, funny, classic heel stuff from Britt Baker. And she's getting over in a major way. You know, I, I was saying that I didn't want her to be there every week with the injury because I thought it would get repetitive but they are proving me wrong. So I don't know how long-term the injury is. Maybe there are a couple weeks where she should take off, but so far, so good. So proving me wrong, definitely, with that. FTR defeated SCU in a pretty good tag team match. FTR, again, getting the chance to display everything they can do without restriction. Dax Hardwood, in particular, absolutely killed. Yes, K-I-L-T, that post-match promo. It was great to see Pentagon back. They, I really missed him, and of course, Phoenix, him getting injured in AEW. They are such a big part of what AEW offers me personally as a fan. I watch AEW for the great wrestling and the great wrestlers. And one of the reasons I've been a little bit down on AEW 
in the pandemic era has nothing to do with AEW, just has to do with the situation that we're in. Not being able to have Pentagon, Phoenix getting injured, Pac not being there. Certainly the trio of them as Death Triangle, they had just formed right before this all happened. I was really excited about that. So not having some of your best wrestlers and, and your top storylines, things that you were trying to do, just naturally hurt the product in my eyes. I don't care as much about the Brody Lees and Colt Cabanas. I do like Joey Janela and Luchasaurus, but those characters aren't drawing me to the TV. Things that will make me tune into AEW are things like Pentagon. Uh, on the back end of this, the thing I didn't like, the Butcher and the Blade promo, man, that was sloppy. You could just tell the guy kept getting lost and wasn't comfortable really doing that, being put in that situation. FTR turned around too early, seeing that, you know, Penta and, and Phoenix were there. And then Blade, basically, Butcher and Blade basically had to get to um, the part where they then said, hey, and we're going to team up with them. And then the attack finally happened. So that was all just really sloppy and crappy. Uh, you know, not, a, not anyone's fault, I guess, but... You know, it kind of took the second down a peg. Uh, but I am kind of curious. Are they doing this eight-man tag with three of the best tag teams in the world in it? So that's a big match for Fighter Fest. something I'm excited to see. Now, I did think the build for the tag team title match up until Wednesday night was lacking because there were so many number one contenders and so many different situations where the titles were on the line. It was just ridiculous. I was at a 0. 0.0. 0. Zero point. Zero. In terms of caring about it. But what AEW succeeded in doing was they put together a three-minute match promo package that dove into the relationship of the best friends and showed that Kenny Omega and Hangman Page are kind of similarly trying to become best friends and great tag team partners. And by doing that, they succeeded in getting me to care about their relationship more than I already did and to care about this match, actual best friends versus guys that are trying to be best friends. And yes, that was maybe always the storyline, but it had not been laid out on television because of all the other crap that I didn't like that they kept kind of shoving in our faces. It doesn't mean the matches weren't good, of course. Kenny Omega and Hangman Page in the ring, it's good. But to build up to an actual match at a quote-unquote pay-per-view, they weren't succeeding, but they did on Wednesday night with this segment. It's a big lesson that WWE needs to learn. If you have a pay-per-view match that lacks some build, you can make it up very quickly just by putting a little bit of effort and storyline focus into it, interviews with third parties, and things like that. They kind of did it a little bit with the greatest wrestling match of all time, but that did have television build. I think a good example is the Dolph Ziggler and Drew McIntyre. They threw that together as an in-between title feud for Drew McIntyre. WWE now has a few weeks before that. They need on Raw to put together a package that shows Dolph Ziggler bringing back Drew McIntyre to Raw a couple of years ago, their successes and failures together, eventually them splitting up, and then what Drew McIntyre has gone on and done while Dolph Ziggler consistently has gotten title opportunities and keeps failing at them. You put a package like that together, I know that all because I'm a longtime viewer, Right. But you haven't given me that in current TV storyline to make me actually care about the match. But if you do put all of that together, then you can save the build for that match, just as AEW saved the build for this match. You saw Brian Cage in another squash in an unscheduled match that took place because John Moxley stayed home, so we know why that happened. My only takeaway, really, 
is that Taz is getting more comfortable cutting his promos again. He's starting to get back into the groove. He really delivered with that one. I do not know what Brian Cage would be like in AEW without Taz. I know he's big and strong. I know he's impressive in the ring. But Taz is actually selling him as a legitimate main event threat right off the gate. And there is a question about that later I'm going to address. But I will say that without Taz, this very much would have been a womp womp type of storyline. With Taz, he's making it work. So a, a big kudos for him. Matt Hardy defeated Santana. Obviously, a match again that was a replacement. And it felt like one from the very start. Smart finish with Hardy winning and then Santana and Ortiz attacking. Private Party then saving Matt Hardy, which has obviously been, not only was that an unfortunate rhyme, but it's obviously something that has been building a little bit. So maybe it was supposed to be a Sammy Matt Hardy match where um, Santana or Ortiz were going to interfere and then Private Party would have saved them. And maybe they were planning to do a six-man tag. But I love the idea of Private Party versus Santana and Ortiz. Again, when we talk about why do I want to watch AEW, I want to watch good wrestling. Santana and Ortiz are a great tag team. Private Party is on the cusp of becoming a great tag team. Very athletic, very unique. Uh, so I am excited to see that. I assume at Fighter Fest, I don't exactly know when they're going to do it. And then the main event, Chris Jericho versus Orange Cassidy in a face-off. Expert level, promo school, straight A from Chris Jericho. Tearing down Orange Cassidy, the gimmick, the person, every single thing that you see about him in an incontrovertible way. There was no way to argue with the promo that Chris Jericho delivered about Orange Cassidy if you are a wrestling purist or a older fan of professional wrestling. Now, the young people can come up and say, no, it's unique, inventive, whatever. But what Jericho said was my initial opinion of Orange Cassidy before I actually got to see him do his thing in AEW. I was like, man, I get the gimmick. It's kind of funny. It's tongue-in-cheek. But, you know, eventually it's going to wear on me. It hasn't worn on me because he's doing a really good job. So it was just a natural storyline. I loved it. Like I said, that is a promo school promo. It's, hey, I have this match coming up. What am I going to say about this guy? That's what I'm going to say. So no, no surprise that it came from a veteran in Chris Jericho. I also like the brawl that they did into the crowd. I thought it ended up pretty weakly with the Superman punch from Orange Cassidy. I get the tongue-in-cheek nature of that as well. He's not a big guy. He's doing the Superman punch. But if you're going to have Chris Jericho go flying through a table and not have it be 100% comedy, a spear or something like that may have been a little bit better. But as I said, there was no major standout segment for the show. Therefore, the main event basically being Matt Hardy and Santana in terms of a match and then this segment closing the show. I do think it's possible that NXT won the quarter hour here. Not that that really matters, but, you know, nevertheless, it was good. And you know what? Going through this, I just broke down all of AEW. It actually was a better show than I think I gave it credit for being. I was entertained by it. I just think that the matches themselves that we had, you know, outside of Wardlow and Luchasaurus, that was a good match. The tag match with Cabana and Lee, FTRSCU, and Matt Hardy Santana, I didn't care about any of them. So I think because of that, it brought down the overall show. But as I said, a lot of the things that happened outside of the ring, the Britt Baker stuff, Hikaru Shida, um, the, the segment with um, Omega and Paige and the Best Friends, Taz's promo, and the Orange Cassidy Chris Jericho thing, I did enjoy those. So this was a better show than I gave it credit for. I still don't regret putting NXT ahead of it this week, but AEW did deliver, and I'm going to go immediately back on that comment I made that it didn't deliver for me because it did. And I think it was solid enough to set up Fighter Fest. I am excited for Fighter Fest next week. We will preview that a little bit on Tuesday's show. We're going to break down everything that goes down on Raw and SmackDown, of course, but we will talk 
AEW Fighter Fest at the end of that show as a little bit of a preview into week one. Now, we are not done today. A little bit more show left. We are going to slide into those DMs. First one coming in from Unruly at Wolfpack's own. He said, so I'm convinced Raquel Gonzalez is the powerhouse female wrestler we deserve. If Nia Jax wasn't rushed to the main roster, could she have been that good in the ring? Is it she needs more training or she's just not strong enough to do what she's trying to do? Uh, There's a lot of questions there. To answer your last one, I'll take the last part first. Both. She's not strong enough and she doesn't have the requisite training to do what she needs to do. Uh, I don't want to keep this as a Nia Jax thing because we've talked about her plenty on this podcast. I agree with you, though. I am convinced that Raquel Gonzalez, long term, can be what we have wanted Nia Jax to actually be in WWE. Now, I don't know about promo and storytelling and longer matches with Raquel Gonzalez yet. She still seems to be a little bit green in those areas, or at least we haven't been exposed to her. But I kind of thought the same thing about Kevin Nash. That, hey, here's this guy with Sean. He's just a heavy. He's tall. He can't do much. And then what did Kevin Nash end up doing long term? He became one of the best talkers and promo guys during the Monday Night Wars. So uh, Raquel Gonzalez has everything going for her. She has the look. She has the in-ring ability, the strength, which is the key. That is the number one key. And the nickname, Big Mommy Cool, that's M-A-M-I, by the way, not M-O-M-M-Y. It's a really good nickname. So everything is working right now for Raquel Gonzalez. I think we have the inevitable Shawn Michaels Diesel situation, as I said earlier, where Dakota Kai either wins the title or is unable to win the title and gets extra heelish and Raquel Gonzalez eventually turns on her and becomes a face. That would be pretty cool. But right now it's two thumbs up for Raquel Gonzalez. I really do believe in her long term. And she was indeed a standout from this week. Like I said, if you did not see what I'm talking about, maybe you don't watch NXT, whatever with that one-armed powerbomb where she also kicked Caden Carter while she had Casey Cotnazaro up in the air, go to my Twitter account, or the show's Twitter account, I should say, at Getting Overcast, and check out that highlight. Justin Thompson at J-T-H-O-M-B-E-N-J. He writes in, do you think WWE should change the names of the Raw and SmackDown women's titles to match the men's, meaning women's universal and women's world? Theoretically, Yes. Um, the problem that I have is that WWE does not call the WWE Championship, which is its proper name, the WWE World Championship or the WWE World Heavyweight Championship, which is really what it should be. So right now you have the Universal Championship and the WWE Championship. So if you did equivalencies, it would be the Women's Universal Championship and the Women's WWE Championship. I don't think that's terrible, but having them be the Raw and SmackDown Women's Championship does segment them to shows. I could really go in either direction. I would prefer if titles did not have Raw and SmackDown names on them. That way they were easier to go back and forth between shows, whether it was at a pay-per-view, a multi-brand pay-per-view, in a Royal Rumble type of situation where someone challenges for the other brand and then you have to worry about sending someone back the other direction. I, I think that it would work out better if you called them the Women's Universal and Women's WWE Championship. Yes. Just a couple more here on the way out. Chad Blasinka at I Don't Exaggerate. Why should I care about Brian Cage when we just saw this storyline arc with Lance Archer? What separates these two? Or is there room for such similar packaging in AEW? I think Lance Archer was motivated by storyline. Brian Cage is motivated by dominance. That is really the only difference between the two. I do agree it's very similar. 
not very creative to just have it kind of happen in that way. Uh, Lance Archer at least did have to go through a tournament, whereas Brian Cage just kind of won that chip at double or nothing and got the opportunity. Why should you care? He's pretty dominant. He does have Taz. Taz is getting him over, in my opinion. And I think it will be a very good match. Hopefully we get that match with John Moxley at Fighter Fest uh, night two. So it should be a good match. And I think long-term, he's going to be someone that's very important in AEW. So that is why you should care. But I do think it is fair to say that the storyline arc is somewhat similar in terms of a big heavy with a guy who talks for them, a legend who talks for them. Um, and that's the only reason why, really, they're getting the opportunity. You know, something like that. Adam X. Parsons at Adam X. Parsons. He said, FS1 is effectively canceling WWE backstage, according to PW Insider, not just according to them, according to Renee Young. Uh, do you think this will be a major loss? And what do you think the future will now hold for CM Punk? It's interesting. CM Punk was a Fox employee, not a WWE employee. So it seems like that's terminated. I think this, more than anything, was a cost-cutting move for Fox amid the coronavirus uh, cutting divisions. I think Fox cut a planned WWE division and a planned PBC division in terms of production people uh, and shows and talent and things like that to save money in the short term. What does it mean? I mean, it opens Renee Young up, assuming um, that they want to replicate Raw Talk, which they should. They should bring back Talking Smack and use Renee Young. Smackdown on Friday nights ends at 10. You have that additional hour where you can definitely put a show there, whether it's on WWE Network, whether it's on FS1, whatever the case, a Talking Smack should get ratings or should get attention. It should be something for Renee Young to do. Uh, she continues to be the main backstage person for SmackDown on Fox as well. Uh, they moved her there specifically for Fox because they wanted her. So I think she will continue doing that. But I, look, I think she's been a victim of circumstance in WWE. Not even, I'm not talking about the coronavirus stuff, but you know, she's had a lot of shows that have just gotten canceled, but I don't think any of them got canceled because of her. I think it was failed promo, uh, talking smack was very popular and WWE just decided to cancel it out of nowhere. So I just think she's been a kind of a victim of all of that here. You know, long-term, people will bring up, well, what about AEW? John Moxley's there. Will they go after her? They absolutely should. Um, I don't think WWE is keen to let her go. I think they would do everything that they possibly could to get her to stay. But maybe AEW is able to offer something on that new show that they're going to eventually do, that second show per week, and say, hey, this is your show, or you're the complete host of all of this type of stuff, and you're going to get all this opportunity. And TNT certainly has some might behind it in terms of sports. They do NBA, they do the NCAA tournament, they have some MLB playoff games. So it's not like TNT and Turner is nothing. I meant Turner, not just TNT, by the way. It's not like Turner is nothing compared to Fox. Uh, so she will have an option at some point whenever her contract does open up. I don't know what she will do long term, but I, what I will tell you is I love her in WWE. I love the way she interacts and works with the WWE product. I don't necessarily think she's needed in AEW. So I do hope that things are found for her in the short term and long term in WWE. And as I said at the beginning of the show, you will not find a bigger fan of Renee Young than me. Adam X. Parsons also asked, if the COVID-19 quarantine continues or even intensifies, do you foresee another wave of wrestlers' personnel being released or furloughed? I don't, actually. I think WWE trimmed a lot of the fat, got rid of a lot of people who wanted to not be there anymore, FTR, Rusev, etc. I think they're now pretty set with what they have. 
Potentially, you could see some developmental cuts. Maybe they make decisions on people sooner than they otherwise would. Um, but other than that, I think there's not a lot of wrestlers on the, Like, people think the main roster is bloated. It's really not, especially now with so many people injured and not performing. You need all of the people that they have. There's still a couple people not really getting on TV. But for the most part, everyone is getting opportunities. It may not be every week, but you are seeing them. So I think WWE staffing-wise is actually like pretty solid right now. NXT is big, so you could potentially see a couple call-ups, which could then maybe mean a little back half either cutting or just not getting as many opportunities. And then once everyone that's either out for injury or out for... Uh, coronavirus concerns, once they come back, maybe you would see a little shifting, maybe a couple people get cut. But no, I don't think, nothing massive, and I don't think WWE really has any more fat to trim than what they already did. Sean McDermott, at I'm Board Brother, he writes in, similar to random memorabilia question, who do you remember being the first wrestler you met in person, and how old were you? It's a really good question. Um, I don't necessarily have a recollection of First, I don't know who the first wrestler I ever met was, but I can tell you my first memory, and I don't have a really good memory going back. There's some people who like remember everything when they're six, seven, eight, five. You're like, I don't have memories that are that strong from that age. I don't know why. Um, maybe it's psychologically a blocking it for some reason, although I don't know what it would be. But the first memory I really have of meeting a wrestler where it actually was a decent deal, was I met D'Lo Brown at a car dealership in Fort Lauderdale, Florida at an autograph signing that he was doing. And I remember, because I was there with my mom, I don't know how old I was. I was under, I was not a teenager, obviously, I was younger. Um, I don't know how old I was, but what I remember was my mom looking at me and saying, why are you so red? My face was red. I was so freaking nervous to meet D'Lo freaking Brown that I was red in the face and like jittery and stuff. I ended up meeting him. Nice guy, of course, on the autograph, whatever. The experience I will always remember most is I opened the show talking about the newsletter I used to have. And I met Mick Foley at a comic book store around probably age 14, 15, something like that. And this is when I was running the newsletter. People thought I was older when I was running the newsletter, but I wasn't. Um, and I met Mick Foley at this comic book store. I had a Sako. He signed it. He signed a couple of other things for me. And I remember there was a line, but I said, hey, Mick, I do this newsletter. I've never had an interview. Would you be my first interview? And he like stopped. He like he was signing someone else's thing. He said, this is what I'm going to do. He goes, sit next to me. Continue. Ask me questions. I will answer everything that you ask me. I just can't give you my full attention because I want to be able to sign everything. There's a long line. I was like, holy shit. So I sat down next to the hardcore freaking legend and interviewed him probably for 12 to 14 minutes. I do have the audio. I do not know where it is. If I can find it, I will play like 14-year-old Silver King interviewing Mick Foley in a random comic book store on a really crappy recorder. I don't know how it sounds. I don't know how it has come out. I will try my best to one day, I'm not promising it soon, I will try my best to one day find that audio and air it on this show. So those two are my memories of interactions with wrestlers when I was young. Uh, the only other thing I'll throw out there, this has nothing to do with meeting a wrestler, but I was at a WWE live event. I was sitting in the first row 
And there was a random tag team match where like Stone Cold Steve Austin and Rhino were teaming together. And I think they were heels for some reason in a steel cage match. And I talked massive shit to Steve Austin. And my friend got a photo of me being threatened by Steve Austin with a steel chair. So those are things I will always remember about young, being a young wrestling fan. Thanks for asking the question. I hope you guys find that entertaining. Before we get out of here, we're going to talk about what's up next in the world of professional wrestling. From SmackDown, we have an Intercontinental Championship match on Friday. AJ Styles defending against Drew Gulak. I'm kind of curious how that's going to go. I do expect Styles to retain. But what I'm more curious about is what kind of follow-up we're going to get with Matt Riddle on that show. How do you pay off him beating AJ Styles one week earlier? What do you do? Do you have him have a really big match against another singles performer? Do you have him kind of show up at the, at the end of that match and ch challenge Styles, maybe for Extreme Rules? I'm very interested to see what they do with Matt Riddle. We also have Sheamus holding a toast for Jeff Hardy. I don't even have analysis of that. We're going to see how that goes. And Braun Strowman responding to Bray Wyatt as his you know, new old cult leader persona. Again, don't know how that's going to go, but very little announced for SmackDown. Nothing announced whatsoever for Raw. Um, so really, that is the end of our preview for next week's shows. But I hope that both are good and entertaining so that Tuesday show here on the Getting Over Professional Wrestling Podcast will entertain you. Thank you all for listening to this week's show. Again, you can follow me on Twitter at Silverstein Adam. You can follow the show at Getting Overcast. Folks, those of you that don't follow the show already and you have Twitter, please do. Those of you that do follow the show already and have Twitter, please retweet us. Not just the show episodes, and I do appreciate every single time you guys do that, but I tweet live during these wrestling shows. I try to share clips, get those promoted, get those out. Hopefully people will see them. They'll follow the, the Twitter handle. And then what will happen, hopefully they listen and subscribe to the show. It is all about growing. It is all about the five. So head on over to Apple Podcasts. Leave us that five-star rating and review. Always appreciate when you guys do that. I have been talking long. We have eclipsed an hour. That's it. See you all next time. There's only one more person who wants to say something to you before we get out of here on this stage. Listen, you got something going that's really good. Yeah, I'm going to be right now and tell them about my show madness. Tell them how strong it is and tell them where we're going. Yeah, we to the Twilight Zone. Yeah, and I'll go to these guys with a chance to Does anybody have a chance to get to my show madness? So, you know, the greatest wrestling past person to get you to the end of the day. Say goodbye. Say goodbye. Bye for now.